welcome to the Keep It On Wax podcast. I'm the host, Caleb O'Neill, and today on the show we had a great chat with John Stewart uh, from Sleeper. At the time of recording, the new album by Sleeper, The Modern Age, wasn't out, but it is now out at all good record stores. So pick it up. Um, a massive thank you to exec producer Sean Lyons for this one. Um, and a huge thanks to Mother's Ruin Podcast, whom without, I would not be starting this as early as I am. They've been a great help, great podcast about gin, good friends. Go check them out. They're great. Brilliant. On with the show. Hello, that's me, um, and you are Dr. Dr. John, Dr. John Stewart. Yes, I am. Um, that is I. I know you well as head of my course in music business. Thank you for coming and doing my course. Thank you for teaching it. And other people may know you as the iconic Britpop band Sleeper. You are lead guitarist? Yes, myself and Louise, the singer... Started the band when we were at university, and five years I, ago. Yes, <laughs> in the summer of eighteen seventy-four, and I played guitar, and she sang and played rhythm guitar. That's how it kind of got together. So I'm, I suppose you call it lead guitarist, but I mean I'm not a very good guitarist. I just try and come up with some tunes. Louise is the main today, very much the main songwriter. And Andy, her partner, who is the drummer in the band, is a big co-writer as well. So we're kind of creative, the three of us. We also have a bass player, which is Kieran Pepper, who is a wonderful guy, who is a really, really great guy to be around, and was in the Prodigy for 10 years. So he has lots of good stories to tell. We're recording this just after the sad passing of... Keith Flint and Kieran did Keith's solo album with him, so good friends. Yeah, and that, that was never released. I mean, maybe it will, maybe it will come out now. Mm. And is Kieran the original bassist with we, Sleeper? No, we had a bass player called Deed Osman, who is another really cool guy who now lives in Bristol, and he was our first bass player. And then when we got back together after twenty years, it was just so far for him to travel and Louise and Andy have children so that meant that we would have to organise babysitting and the way we rehearse things is they'll text me and say are you free for an hour tonight but we couldn't really work with as much as we wanted to do it with someone who was commuting from the other side of the country it was just going to be unfeasible Kieran was around and it We've known him for a long time, and he's just a very, very sweet and lovely, lovely man, and the, the ultimate professional. And not actually a bass player, he's a drummer. Uh, that's yeah, his first Multi-talented. Yeah, well, we sort of took it on faith, and he has done the gig and been brilliant. So he's now on the album as well, so we've done a new album. Coming out uh, later this month, and it's called The Modern Age. It's been quite a busy time, and there's been a bit of drama around 
Yeah, there's I'm always drama around stuff. Yeah. Specifically. Well, we got caught up in a whole uh, set of difficult to know what to say because there might be some legal things going on, but the the pledge music funding system has it appears met with some difficulty and we unfortunately are caught up in that along with a lot of other people so it's uh, the yeah it's been been slightly traumatic but uh, such is such is life and uh, you can't control these things how they happen or you can control is what uh, <clears throat> what happens so yeah the track list I was going to look there's a couple of really banging tracks and I can't remember where they fall on the album the title track The Modern Age is a really great one that's a single you release uh, no that's not come out we're doing that live it's going to really well live uh, we did that live on Six Music so it's now out there uh, look at you now that's an all banger that we're doing live and there's a song called The Sun Also Rises which is track three on the album which is my favourite, which is just a really, really cool track. Uh, we were practising last night, so we might, we've got another tour coming up and some exciting festival shows over the summer, so we might do some more stuff from the album. There's a track called Paradise Waiting, which is really cool, and one called Cellophane. And what I, what I really like about them is Louise has written an album that's very true to herself and very contemporary so the video for look at you now has uh, some <clears> stock footage <throat> lots of stock footage and it, it basically the message basically is that polarization is not necessarily a good thing in terms of politics and you can read the video in several ways and the song, but and a lot of it is unsaid, but it is there. Louise is an amazing lyricist, a lot like Dylan, just a truly brilliant lyricist. So you can read several things into it. And when you first listen to Look At You Now, it sounds like it's a song about bands getting back together. Look At You Now and the clothes you're wearing and stuff. That would be the easiest connection. That's what I thought it was. That's what I thought it was. And then she explained it to me and I was like, wow, that is so clever. And it's the clothes you wear is really the ideology that you're cloaking yourself in. So it's really about how we've changed over the the last 10 or 20 years and the rise of, of challenging ideas on both sides of the spectrum and what 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 they're doing and how that polarization is affecting people and the inability to have dialogue and it, which I think is an important issue at the moment so in the video it's great because it's all old footage and uh, we have, we worked with a wonderful guy Keith who sourced and edited and helped us edit the footage and um, there's some quite cool stuff from Maoist China and some stuff from Europe in the 40s. and So it's both sides. And it's really asking people to think about dogma and trying to avoid dogma, uh, uh, which is 
something we grew up with and then I think we spent a lot of our time in the 80s and 90s trying to free ourselves of old dogmas and and it's almost like we can't live without it so the new ones come along on both so you know on all sides on all sides it's not like a one one side you kind of think and I've been in that mindset where you feel you found a truth and it might be a truth on one side or the other politically speaking or in any discussion but uh, sometimes we seem to just swing from 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 one set of ideas to another without realizing that it's almost like we need the dogma we need we need to feel part of something that is we need to feel membership of a group more than we need the truth that's and, safety and, numbers yeah and sometimes those numbers are gathered in different camps and that's where we go to that's where we gravitate towards and the truth's like out there on its own somewhere in an uncomfortable place where no one's camped near it and that's that's what i find interesting and that's really what the song's all about there's a there's a great tune on there about um uh the paradise waiting and it, it it's about the some what what the chorus I had no idea what the chorus was and it's kind of about the the women in Iran that have removed their veils and stuff. It's just so so brilliantly put together. So it's um, definitely seeped in a lot of politics and Well, it's kind of just observational stuff. So there's no I think Louise writes the lyrics and I'm just a fan of them and the it's just really acutely observed, quirky looks at what's happening from from this really smart viewpoint that is trying to make an acute observation about something that makes you think about things. And and Louise does that very well, and I feel very privileged to be allowed to make noise alongside it. And to work with such really good musicians as Kieran and Andy. So for you, in terms of the Sleeper discography, where does this fit? Is it would you consider it your best work up there? Do you think do you think your Sleeper fans from eighties, nineties are gonna be pleasantly surprised or expect some of the same? Well, that's a really great question because you every album you do has a different character and each one's like it's like a child so one you know you shouldn't really have favorites over your children but um i think i would yeah <laughs> I, I, I don't have children but i certainly would and i'm sure many parents do uh the second album was a big seller that we had and that one's obviously great because it it did really well and it had a bunch of hit singles on it and the first album's a bit more the one that louise and i and I wrote from early on in the punky period. And this album sits really neatly, I suppose, between all three. It kind of sounds produced and, and slightly more electronic, like the third, the second and third album do. 
but it's got a lot of the musical influences from the first album in that Louise just sit down, sat down with a guitar and her songwriting method seems to be sit down with a guitar and, and rash out some chords and then write a melody and vocal over the top. Uh, or ha- however she comes up with that, but that's effectively what's going on. And then, so it's got a little bit of the character of the first one too, but it sounds better at times, it's played better probably. And it it's a really good piece of work. It's really nice. And we worked with Stephen Street again, who we'd worked with on the uh, all three albums before. And he's a consummate professional and very nice person too. So it was a good little team and it was... During the World Cup run, so we were able to take a break at the end of the day and watch some football occasionally, which was nice. And he, Stephen, is really passionate about the football, which was nice for to see him jumping up in a pub in Kent Town, just absolutely going crazy when England scored a goal. And um, I was like, oh, that's Stephen Street, who made all the Smith albums and all the Blur albums, and we've just scored a goal. That's quite cool. And he's going absolutely haywire and hugging us, and it was like, I was like, yeah, that's this is a nice evening out. <laughs> so it's obviously scary as a band releasing new music mm. and releasing new music after such a long hiatus. Mm. You can call it a hiatus. Um, mm. It's been received well, though. You've number one single, UK. Yes, we put out a vinyl version of the single and it went to number one in the vinyl hard copy charts, which was nice. It's The sales figures aren't what they were the last time we put out a vinyl single, but it was really nice to have a number one. We, we've never been at number one before, then we got to number five. So that was that was nice and uh, I'll be framing that one. Yeah. And yeah, number one with a bullet. And yeah, it's uh, it's had. Some, I don't actually read the press reviews, but I'm told we've had some nice ones and then some other ones, and I'm okay with that. Well, I've got some now. I'm not going to expose you to <laughs> reviews. Um. That would be quite funny. But no, I literally, I sort of made a decision with this not to do that because, um, I don't know. I just it's like it's not what it's for. It's it's the people who like it, the people who buy it, many will be people who are sleeper fans first time around and would like to hear some more after all these years. So they won't be reading the reviews either. And I kind of lost my respect a little bit for music journalists over the years and feel a bit more confident about how that all works and I know the system a little bit more that I'm just choosing not to um, engage with it. Yes. If you want to go inspirational and deep, you make music for your fans, not the journalists. Yeah, I think you have to. And, and of course, it's nice when people like it. And some people, I know some people have liked it. And we've had some great comeback from people in the press that have been really nice. Some of them, which is great. That's, that is really cool. So, yeah. But I, I've just decided not to engage it. I'm of an age where I have a job and a career and I really love my life so what somebody at the enemy thinks of this is not going to determine my future whereas when I was 26 it meant everything to us um, so whether or not it gets on the BBC radio playlist or whether or not it gets a good enemy review or 
any of that. My career now is in doing this and working with people like you, and I really love it. And um, that's my feedback from my students at the end of the year is way more important to me than the press reviews of my album. That's the context I'm working in now. So any of my students that are doing the National Student Survey or doing little feedback polls on the module that I teach or that people that I manage teach, that's the feedback I'm listening to. They're the people I want to be happy. And the Sleeper fans who buy the record and enjoy it, or anybody else who does that. But um, it's the music industry's changed in that, yes, to a certain extent, you're beholden to the press and the, the gatekeepers that were there 20 years ago, but also there's a huge independent media out there now as well. And um, so that whole process has been democratised. There's a great blogger who I should give a shout out to called, you might have to pause this while I think of his name. That's fine. I think he's on the phone, actually. I think I put it off on the We're back on. Cool. So, yeah, the whilst having just said that, I'm ignoring the music press. I do enjoy independent media. I'm a great champion of YouTubers and bloggers, being a blogger myself. Um, there's a, a blog called the MMA, the Mild-Mannered Army, and he's a really great writer. And he has quite a compact following on the internet, but he really understands music and writes very well about it and um, we we saw him the other week and thought that was the way he covered things was really good and yeah so shout out to him and I, I just think there's a growth of YouTube channels in particular to a certain extent that format I think is going to replace television Podcasts as well. Podcasts, <laughs> I think, will threaten to replace radio. And um, we're, we're at the stage of a revolution in, in media that's happening now. And there's a lot of debates internally amongst colleagues who work here, who work in the music industry, about the future of concepts like copyright and old school media gatekeeping and how that's going to be managed in future. And I kind of like the idea that actually we are in a new world of digital freedom, whereby you can go online and type in something and a podcast will come up on it. And if I'm, if I have some wherewithal in terms of what, how I'm able to judge the rigor of that information for myself, which is my responsibility, I can work out whether or not I trust it. And sometimes that's more so than what I, the mainstream media sources. You know, I've, I've been following developments in various fields and seen some very trusted mainstream media sources that I, I know aren't telling the truth on various issues, particularly around extreme politics and stuff where there's certain 
areas that they want they won't accept news from and they're pushing other agendas and it, it can be in all kinds of different areas um, so what where you used to have trusted media sources I think they've kind of gone to a certain extent and it's now a much more level playing field and so I'm a, I'm a great supporter of independent media bloggers YouTubers. I mean, my blog, I did, did a little blog on, that's quite a good example actually, I did a blog essay on recovery and alcoholism and got picked up by a journalist who, who then interviewed me and it turned into an article in The Guardian, which wasn't really the same focus and was much more dramatic and was edited in certain ways and that, that was cool, I didn't have a problem with that. But it, my blog essay, which very few people read, maybe 100 people a day, gets some traction, uh, has been seen far fewer times than the Guardian piece, which drew a significant audience. And um, my blog essay is the correct information. So, and that's a trusted news source. I mean, I think any subject that you know something about, when it's covered on television or in the press, you're like, well, I haven't got that right. So, if if, if you have an expertise in one area, and mine is, I don't know, car mechanics or fly fishing or how to drive a bus or plumbing, they're always getting it wrong in all those different, you know, everybody who knows anything about anything looks at that and goes, well, that, that's not correct. So why would you believe anything from what are supposedly true. trusted sources? And so I think now we have an opportunity to look at Music, the music industry, media as a whole. So it's a great age of independent information and free, democ dem democratically organised information that obviously you have to view with a, with a lot of suspicion, but you should view everything with suspicion. And, and um, there are some amazing blogs. My, fa my favourite blog in the world is the, is the Scientology blog, The Underground Bunker, which... Is almost single-handedly unpicking what was at one time a very popular world religion based in America by a science fiction author. And that's one guy, one blogger, who has written about it every day for many years now. And he's really starting to impact it and to challenge some of the assumptions about it. And the the in this case, the gatekeepers are people like uh, well, the big Hollywood film stars who are Scientologists, you know, Tom Cruise and that, and the fact they've got billions and zillions of dollars in property. The truth is that, that something, some of the things going on are a little bit weird and unsafe and questionable. And this one guy with a blog, The Underground Bunker, Tony Ortega, has picked it apart with the power of truth and a, and a, and a well-turned paragraph and a comment yeah. section. So with support of his readers, day after day and day out for four years, and that's the power of of, it, of digital transparency in the in the information age. So it's a very very powerful thing, and there's lots of YouTube channels that do similar things and blogs in all kinds of areas. And uh, I think to a certain extent that I know the Levi the Poet album came about because of Bandcamp, which is a similar kind of thing. Yeah. So, connects to this in a certain way. It always does. 
Um, moving on then, I guess we're going to go Ooh. one more thing, your tours. Ooh. Your touring again. When was the first reunion tour? Was that? We got asked to do a thing for this kind of Britpop festival that runs in venues for the length of the day. Um, it's based around a club night and when we weren't sure what to do. Uh, we'd always said we'd never get back together and I have a full-time job and I was just finishing my PhD and that's with a bit of luck been accepted for publication by a big academic publisher which hopefully will be one of the major university presses in the UK so that's a big thing for me and then we got offered this thing and Louise and I and Andy had always said we're just not going to do it and Louise had said I think I want to do it changed her mind so at that point it was like all right uh, We'll give it a go, and we took part in the tour. We toured at the Blue Tones and Salad and My Life Story, and it was a space and uh, dodgy. So it was a really great lineup, and the tour, so the tour sold out. The reception was really positive, and um, then we were approached by an agent who said, "Would you like to do your own tour?" So we said okay and I haven't had a day off since well that was two years ago perfect so we've done tours work finished the PhD got awarded the PhD getting the book deal together tour album blah 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 and it's all it's going very 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 quickly because it's literally a 24-hour news cycle in life at the moment it just isn't stopping and I've kind of got used to it I'm my the thing I'm most conscious of, as you know, being one of my students, is that, that the course doesn't get left behind because that's my first love. And um, so I've been very, I've been very, very careful to keep up with that and what's happening with that. And um, I think that's it's going okay. Well, as a student, it doesn't feel as if you're any further away from it. Well, I'm very in very regular contact with everybody, and everybody knows where I am, and we've we've you know I've. I'm, I just, I love it and I want it to go well and I really feel a great privilege to be involved in it and I've been at, at been Brighton since it opened in 2002, it's, I've been doing that way longer than I ever did the band actually, it's been 16 years now so it's a big part of my life and, and it's a fantastic thing to have done and just to be working with a lot of really great young people is, is such a privilege so that's my priority and at the same time you've got to balance it off with it's kind of nice like a lot of students have said oh my course leaders are on the charts that's cool so that's really nice or we're on telly my course leaders on tv or the, i'll get a message from a parent saying oh i heard you on six music on the christmas show which is all nice but the priority for me has to be the educational experience of the students i'm responsible for ultimately it's good news for me. <laughs> Great news for me. Um, so yes, yeah, so let's discuss mm. the, the theme of this podcast in which we discuss an album one has given the other mm -hmm. and the albums we chose. So do you want to say the album you chose? Yeah, my favourite album ever, which has been so probably forever, is the very first proper Diva album 
It's called Are We Not Men? We Are Devo. And it came out uh, in 1978. That's a post-punk album. It was recorded in Connie Plank's studio, which is where Kraftwerk did a lot of their early stuff, produced by Brian Eno. Came out on Virgin Records and at Warner's in America and was an absolutely groundbreaking post-punk record. And what is really special about it for me is it's a fairly rough-sounding art-punk band being produced by the world's greatest indie producer at the time who could really make things sound good using analog equipment in a studio that was famous for a kind of kraut, what was called kraut rock sound. So it's a really great combination of brilliant songs, punk attitude, art, art rock as well, a very art punk type band. And, um, and then the sonics are amazing and the creativity of it is just unparalleled and I suppose that I sum it up by saying that you can play this to a student today tell them it was recorded yesterday and they'll probably believe you and I have done that in classes I've played it that's what I've gone have you heard this new band and they go that is awesome I'm like well it's actually 50 year old this record and you not told me yeah how was it 78, 88, 98 40 years old I, it sounds fantastic. Ooh. My first impressions of it were that I, I felt there must have been an error in mm. the uh, date yeah. on it because it just sound it holds up to today's production quality. Sounds fantastic, catchy, mm. really good energy, and you know maybe it's gone full circle, but I still think the album itself is as relevant today as it would have been forty years ago. Mm. And so, in terms of the album itself, we've established your time favourite album, mm. so it's probably why you chose to discuss this album. When did you first hear it? I was at school, remember? yeah, I was at school and I was kind of adopted by these slightly older kids who were punks in the late 70s and I would have been uh, 10. So I was like, if you see those old pictures of gangs of punk rockers and they have a kid who's like their mascot that they sort of torture and give sweets to, and make them wear stupid clothes with, with um, punk designs that look inappropriate for a 10-year-old. That was me for a period. So um, the series This Is England is based on you. Yeah, that, well, it's really interesting you mentioned This Is England because the series, I grew up on the estate where that series was filmed. It's in, in uh, sunny Sheffield. Yes, yes. My, I lived on the edge of the estate, but that, that place, was it was so crap that... Um, they used it for This Is England to represent <laughs> how shit the 80s were. And that was my life. My life, my, eight, my 80s life was a cross between This Is England and uh, what's the film about stripping? Uh, Full Monty. Full Monty. Yeah, that was basically my life, but without the stripping. You're very well adjusted as such. I've survived. Yeah, I'm a survivor. <laughs> um, so I, I heard that when I was 11 and there were certain songs. I, I just knew it was great. For the first time I heard it and also so th this got one guy in particular Michael Day who was who was an amazing dude who was in a really cool band um, 
who this is Harold Pulpar, who played with Pulp, and I saw Pulp at a very, very young age in Sheffield, because my the kid up the road who I sort of idolised was in this band, and they supported Pulp, and Pulp's, the first iteration of Pulp supported them, and that kind of stuff. And um, so he had just had what, for me, was an amazing record collection. This is before the internet, obviously. And he had just what are now iconic records like the Buzzcocks Spiral Scratch album. And this was in amongst it. He had all the Kraftwerk stuff, which really turned me on to that. Although not the super early Kraftwerk stuff, which I bought for myself. Uh, and he had this. And it just was... Whilst a lot of punk kids were into fairly full-on, aggressive, guitar-y, punky stuff. There was something about this was, that was just a little bit more arty that really appealed to me, and the melody lines, and the... I don't know if this should stay in or not, but there's a song, when you're 13, uh, and there's no internet, you you sort of discover this, what... Um, can I the word? You discover masturbation as a teenager. Can we go, talk about that? You can Are go anywhere you want. <laughs> so, and there's a song called Uncontrollable Urge on the album, which I don't know what it's about, but it's like my hormones kicked off. And it, it was, I'd sort of gone through that stage where you're, most, many young men will identify with it, where you kind of discover this thing, this thing hormonally happens to you. And that was just my life. That song was just my life. I think a lot of people have that thing where a song becomes their life. Yeah. Um, Mine's probably nothing spectacular, yeah. though. Probably like Avril Lavigne's Skater Boy or something. There you go. <laughs> That's cool. So the, I think what it was was there was two songs about wanking at the time. One was the Buzzcocks uh, Orgasm Addict, which is basically a very blatant song about being 14 and discovering yourself. And um, this is at a time when that practice was controversial, frowned on and whatever, probably still is today. Um, and uh, whereas actually it's quite a healthy thing to do because you need to clear your pipes out. <laughs> no damaging no argument from me. <laughs> and, uh, and this was a slightly more subtle version of that. Uh, which you you weren't sure what it was about, but like I was saying earlier about Louise's lyrics, you knew it was about something, and it expressed it very well, and and I took it to be about that, and it was a, so that's a great example of how the album works for me in a way that pure punk, which was for a 13, 14 year old kid, was a little bit too noisy, and brash and scary. I could never imagine myself going to a punk gig at 13, but I could imagine myself seeing Devo, and I did go and see Kraftwerk at that time, because it was slightly more arty, so I felt a bit safe, I felt like I wasn't going to get beaten up, which was, you know, a distinct possibility going to gigs in Sheffield at that time. But, um, and then, I, it just stayed with me, because it sounded so good, and Eno obviously became Brian Eno, and produced U2, and all those other names, and, and, um, uh, and then I started piecing the things together, you know, the work that Eno had done for himself and Roxy Music and it, it, just the fact that he'd worked with these cr this crazy uncoordinated art band and pulled it all together. It's like a case study in how a producer can make something really work. And if you listen to Devo's pre-Eno stuff, 
It's not, uh, it's not a patch on what they did with him in the Krakow studio. And after that, then they became very popular and they had a couple of huge hits, Whip It and tracks like that, which don't quite sound, they sound more American, New Wave after that, which is fine because they had a career and they, they were able to, you know, make a living out of it, which is brilliant. But that one moment, that crossover from obscure Midwestern, think of all the towns in the Midwest, and they, they come from some town, I've been there, some town in the middle of nowhere uh, in, in Ohio. And um, th there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of bands. This one like arty little band drives to New York, does some shows, gets spotted by, I think Mick Jagger and David Bowie, at a punk club in New York, Bowie's like, I will record you in when I when I go to Germany. They fly out to Germany on, on his dime. Well, I can't remember the story fully, but something like or maybe Eno's paid for it, because Eno's recording just finished recording Bowie. Blag a week at the studio in February in the intense winter with wearing no clothes and and borrowing all Kraftworks synthesizers and stuff and guitar amps and just crank out this incredible sounding record that still sounds like a moment. I love those moments in time that are captured. The moment when the Bob Dylan fan at the Manchester venue shouts Judas at him and it's captured on his mind because the he's shouting from the balcony and the balcony at that particular venue in Manchester is right next to the stage. He's virtually on stage next to the mic, which is why it comes through so well. Or the moment when Somebody in the Deep South at the last Beatles tour in Memphis throws a firecracker on stage and it explodes really loudly. Everyone thinks Lennon's been shot, but the band carry on playing. Uh, and you, that audio's out there. Or the, the audio of the first day John met Paul and John was playing with the, uh, the quarrymen. Someone recorded that and you can find that online now. Those little moments in time when just something incredible happens. Uh, and this this sounded to me like the whole album of that, and um, and then later on, as an academic now, I I heard there was a book being made about Brian Eno of academic essays, and no one was covering this album, which I think is probably Eno's most impactful, important work in some ways because he's working with this band, he funded the whole thing. Bowie had said he was going to pay for it, I think, and then Eno ended up paying for it. And uh, and also they hated each other, because these are these young, sort of snotty punks from America, and Eno's pulling out all his uh, cards, his suggestion cards, and that these guys are like, no, we're here to make a, a classic punk album, help us sound good. And... Um, Brian's a bit up himself and the band don't want it. And so there's an interesting creative tension going on, which I think you can hear on the record. And, uh, and Jerry, I got to interview Jerry for this book chapter, which came out in a, in a, a book. The chapter's called Eno and Devo. Um, it's an it's a collection of academic essays on Brian Eno. And I've published quite a lot of work as an academic, but I'm still probably the proud. This is the thing I'm the most proud of. And... Um, so I got to talking through the whole process and Jerry, he was on, on the phone in LA and I just recorded it. Went through all that thing of, is it on? Is it working? Is the clock? Oh, two, <laughs> two separate things all down the phone and um, try not to say anything stupid. 
and he was great he was amazing um and i think it's quite a good little bit of work and uh just cap try to capture that moment of, of of time and then the other things i found out from jerry the the, the one of the key songwriters and bass player in the band was that he'd been in Kent State University, which was the massacre that happened during towards the end of the Vietnam War when student protesters were campaigning against the draft in a, a largely peaceful demonstration and were fired upon by state troopers and four people were shot dead and many others maimed and, and paralysed. And Jerry had been there. At that moment in time. And he was a young student and that moment just and you can get the recently they released speaking of moments in time they're captured the government released the audio of that and if the firing just runs and runs and runs and you're thinking my god what are they doing and um this is state troopers firing on unarmed students and jerry off of devo was in that and that's what made him go i want to in 1974 you know years years before for three years before, well, maybe a couple of years before Punk. Sorry, 1970, that was a Kent State massacre. So in 1970, that's what made Jerry Casale go, right, I am going to do something extraordinary with my art and it's going to be left field or, or skew with or not mainstream because I am really pissed off about what's happened. So that's where that really great creative tension comes from. Uh, that moment in history and he, and he that was Jerry really wanted to talk through that and and then I saw on YouTube that he'd been back and they had a commemoration and he spoke at the event uh, it must have been 2010 so it was the shooting was May 1970 and then it must have been the 40th anniversary and I'm sure he will go back in 2020 because it became this kind of defining moment uh, that he'd been been involved in, and and that's where that that energy came from, and that that vision to be, we will be anything but normal because normal is just not right, uh, and um, and then you get that linking with the the creative force of uh, of Eno and his ability to just shape sound in a really brilliant way uh, in Kraftwerk Studio. It's just it's. It's like, for me, it's like no other record. And um, and then underneath it all, it has this little Moog synthesizer tinkling away with white noise and doing, I call it the analog underscore in the academic piece, but it's just this thing making just noise, analog noise. A, a, a band that borrowed it a lot was, there's a track Jenny O'Needed line by Stereolab, and they do that really well. They just have a, a, a Moog, is how you're supposed to pronounce it, a Moog synthesizer just squawking through the song. And this album's full of that, and it's full of white noise, turned up really loud, and then the band come in. and it, So it, it's just brilliantly done. And I think what makes it so special is you they're all effects that you wouldn't think of doing on a plug-in. You need the machine in front of you, and you play the... You play the buttons, and it's unique to having a Moog synthesizer that can do white noise and have a low pass filter and whatever on it, an LFO, low frequency oscillator that can do those kind of swoopy sounds. And you just, if you were doing it on the screen 
on the plugin or if you were doing it on say a modular synth today I don't think it would sound quite the same so it's got it's kind of of its time but at the same time it's it still sounds new because it was just brilliantly recorded and then they have all this creative tension of the Eno's Oblique Strategies playing cards and the band refusing to engage with it and um so finding out the story behind it was uh, the musical tensions that I'd sensed in the piece and then interviewing Jerry and hearing them describe them was, was a really great moment. The, their cover of Satisfaction, which is probably one of their more famous early tracks, they do. They wanted to do a cover of Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones without the riff. That's so... Funny enough, I've, I've noticed here's my thoughts on the album... That stood out as my favourite mm. track, and obviously knowing it was a cover, I don't, I don't know if I want to go on record saying this, but I preferred it. It's, it's mm. there's something more powerful to it. Late, there's like it sounds very simple how it's recorded, yeah. but there's so many layers that you just know mm. that a lot of work went into it. So that's he, my favourite track. Yeah, Jerry explained that, and that's in the book chapter. It's it's like a. There's quite a lot of layers of percussion and, and rhythm going on. So he's playing an offbeat and the drummer's playing an offbeat. And so it's kind of like Scar. And there is the, the, the famous riff isn't there. And then the vocal style is just so different. And it's much more, it's like that uncontrollable urge song. It's much more, I mean, Mick Jagger is just like this masculine, you know, I'm, I'm so horny, I cannot be satisfied. The beast it's like a blues song. Yeah, it's an old-fashioned blues, you know, male braggadocio thing, which, you know, great, well done. But this is much more, if you think about those, I can't get no satisfaction, it's like frustration, sexual frustration. He's, he's an incel, right, in contemporary internet parlance. Yeah. Uh, he's an involuntary celibate, and the vocal is like high-pitched and wobbly, and it's much more... Matching, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried. <laughs> Can't you know? It's fantastic. It totally reinvents the meaning. And this is also a song that has lots of great cover versions. So the other, the Otis Redding one, where he wasn't massively familiar with the original, and you don't, the the horns kind of do the riff, but not quite. So it, they're following in a great tradition of rewriting what, and that's what makes it a truly great song. You can completely rewrite it, and it's still a brilliant tune. I have no shame. I prefer the Devo version, even to I prefer Otis Redding probably to the Stones, and I prefer the Devo version. But that's obviously personal taste. Ultimately, <laughs> it's yeah. easy. It's easy to talk about the good points mm. of, of an album you love, and mm. I'm, I'm not going to ask you to tear it apart and tell me the bits you don't like the most. There's nothing I don't like about this album. Well, I've got a question to ask you okay. that I want you to answer. Yeah. Try to answer. Yeah. If you really can't, that's what we want. Yeah. It's hard because this album did come out in a time where we don't have the modern, say, Spotify, Ooh. Apple Music, yeah. Amazon, where you can just go into an album and say, put on Satisfaction Only, yeah. move to the next artist, yeah. put it in a playlist. So you would have to listen to an album from A to B. Yeah. If you were to listen to this album, 
Which track would you skip? Yeah, what track is what is your most least listened to track, or can you live That's without? A very, very good question. So there's there's a there's a track. It's a little bit like that Radiohead track um, on on uh, OK Computer that no one listens to, the one with the robot voice. Okay, yeah, it's kind of like an interlude almost. Yeah, and the, the I think it's the last. It's called "Shrivel Up." It's the last track, but I don't know. I just I it it sounds so different, and the way it ends, it's like very unmusical. In that sense, it's probably the one that you wouldn't. If you were going to play some of this album, go. This is the greatest album made. You wouldn't put "Shrivel Up." <laughs> um, uh, and sloppy, the two. They're the, funnily enough, they're the two that weren't recorded in Germany with Eno. Okay. But Shrivel Up's interesting because so they're more faithful to the original Devo, but Shrivel Up does still sound quite good because it's got a lot of the the story of the album is the fight of Devo to get the weird shit on, whilst Eno, the producer who's paying for the session, has flown across the world, is trying to make it as commercial as possible, and so Shrivel Up. Is and put sloppy is like your original weird shit Devo getting their stuff together yeah. in another studio uh, in in San Francisco before they go to Germany, and uh, and that was also interesting. Flood fronted by the studio owner, he paid for that because he just the Pixies had a similar thing. You get it right, and people would just be like, they'll come and be like, hey, I'll pay for you to do this because I just I'm a fan. It shows you, you know, that moment of genius, and and um, yeah. So the those two tracks, sloppy and shrivel. If I was playing somebody this and going, this is my greatest album of all time, I wouldn't start with those two. But once you understand the rest of the album, and then then it kind of made sense once I'd heard from Jerry about how it was recorded and what it all meant. It's like ah, they were done elsewhere, and uh, before Reno, you know, and they're the ones that have all the sort of really crappy noises on but they alongside the Devo thing they kind of make sense that's not alongside the Eno production the spark at Eno but they, they sound slightly out of place and like, and like the early D, the pre-Eno Devo and on the flip side what track would you so I think the famous one is is the cover of of Satisfaction um, there's it's difficult because they're... Would you want to give that to say it was a Rolling Stones fan coming at you? Yeah. You wouldn't want to give them that song first. Or maybe you would. Yeah, that might. <laughs> well, there's, there's a track, there's a weird track called Jocko Homo, which, which there's a few tracks that, that, that have quite... Um, I think it was recorded in the 70s, so there's probably lyrics that wouldn't, wouldn't get past your sort of self-censorship today, but Jocko Homo, which is about Homo sapiens, it's not like a, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a pejorative reference. It's, um, it's not a sexuality thing. It's about the, the species, Homo sapiens. And, uh, that, I, that I think is the greatest 
triumph of the record. But again, you wouldn't necessarily play it someone because it's so challenging to listen to. So, I tell you what I do play people is the track Too Much Paranoia, which is a kind of a non-song, but it has a guitar solo where they just they're turning the tuning pegs on the guitar. Yes. Weird sound. And it's, and it's got put through a harmonizer so it goes really weird and super deep. And um, that's that's one you can play through and go, look, this album sounds like nothing else. Um, as far as I'm aware and it's musical and yet some kind of emotional assault course at the same time and this track tells you what it's all about and I've played that in class on a PA and students have gone yeah that's amazing many other students have gone I don't want to hear anymore (laughs) oh I heard that that's sick enough thank you enough of your weird perverted music brilliant I mean, I think for me, one thing I recognised, and if you disagree, please let me know. Mm-hmm. It felt the album itself, whilst there are songs that stand out, and makes those songs that may not stand out as well. Mm-hmm. If you just gave me one big audio file from mm-hmm. start to finish, I can believe that that was yeah. one big song because it yeah. follows so perfectly. It's like they've got this riff in the background. Almost sounds like going upstairs. It's very doom doom, doom and it's, mm. that seems to follow through the whole album. Yeah, and it made it instantly so accessible for me mm. to go in, and no matter if I was on track one ten seconds in or track ten mm. a minute in, I still had that that basis to keep mm. me grounded. Mm. And throughout the whole album, I noticed that, and vocally as well. Mm. There was parts in that album where. I could have sworn it was someone like Robert Smith singing. There's yes. such a Robert Smith sounding vocal to it. And I say that because he's probably maybe a you know more known name mm-hmm. than the vocalist of Devo. But it just, I, and I'm, you know, maybe that Cure got their inspiration from. I'm sure, Devo, I'm sure he knows the sound, and they came about at roughly the same time. But it's just, yeah. it was a great, great listen. He's down, he's down at the Brighton Electric quite a lot. If you ever see him in the bar, that would be a great question to ask him. Yeah. Because <laughs> that is very true. There's, yeah. There is a, there's... And the drum machine, the sparseness of it. There's something very similar there. The electric guitar alongside the drum machine and that kind of, yeah, yeah. And it's not like they would have took creative notes from each other being from two different yeah. sides of the world, you know, as if it, they came around at similar times. It was... I'd be surprised if he hadn't heard that record. The the other the really obviously poppy one is gut feeling, which which has got that really cool guitar riff, and it's almost like this album just it's like partly musical and then weird and then musical and weird and then just you get certainly on a playlist or on a, a spot listening to it on Spotify or a CD, you get you get to track eight and then finally there's a song. Yeah, just the gut feeling riff. Yeah. So, but it just keeps going around. It's a circular song, and then it descends into this chaos of this thing called "Slap Your Mammy," which is just weird. Which is what is that about domestic abuse? What the hell is that? That's one of those lyrics that probably wouldn't get released. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's that's like what that's the peak of the whole thing. If you are listening to it, because I remember I had this on vinyl, so it went from one side to the other, but 
on the CD, it is that experience where you just join and it, it just takes you on a journey and then it peaks at that three quarters way through or two sixty six percent, which is that if you think about it, the uh, uh, what's that mathematical formula by which you judge beautiful beauty and art? It's like the golden mean, which is 60, 61% or something, some strange, it's about two thirds. And it's, it's how old buildings were designed and paintings were drawn and uh, there's an element of visual composition. It works in nature, it's how um, certain cells are constructed and how they come together so there's an element of the golden mean of nature arguably um, but it's it's this punctuation point about two-thirds of the way through something and it's interesting that the album builds to that and then peaks with gut feeling and then subsides into the more sort of noise tracks so that it does follow in that respect the golden mean hmm. I've never thought of that before, so there you go. On recording, first thoughts of a lifetime favourite. Yeah, never. Special never. moment. Well, because I'm looking at the track listing now, and it's like the golden ratio, the golden mean. That is where that track sits, is, is right at that spot. And, and that's very important in, in the design of buildings, and the Romans and the Greeks knew about it. And, um, Translates to music as it well. It does, yeah. You hear a lot of golden mean in music, and um, some people have written pieces around it as well. Uh, it's basically two thirds, yeah, which is which is roughly where that track sits. It's that kind of Fibonacci. That's what it, it's the Fibonacci sequence, the golden ratio. I've learned something new today. Mm. So before we move on, is there anything you want? to say regarding this album that you haven't said or something you feel needs to be covered bear in mind the goal of this is to get people to listen to it well if you remember the Rugrats Devo is it the did, Nickelodeon yes team? that's oh. the people who did this record wow that's something I grew up with so there's a, it has this little carry on in culture via things like Rugrats and other areas where they, they then went into music and media. And um, so you do hear that influence in there. Wow, so I have heard Evo before. Yes, the little quirky. Gave me this album. Yeah. Do, 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 do. Yeah, and that one. Okay. Those wow. quirky, rinky-dink melodies and interesting instruments and analog noises. That's Rugrats. That's them. I think, sadly, my generation are. The end of the Rugrats. Yeah, I, I know. That's, anymore. I tell you, honestly, it's scary. In class, you make a reference to something that you still think is current and everyone's blank faced at you. <laughs> uh, what's that cartoon where there's like a cat and a, not Tom and Jerry, the, the sort of Rugrats era? Ren and Stimpy? Yeah. People are like, what, 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 what? you know. Things like that, I don't think would sit in today's. People just don't know it. I don't think it'd be allowed to be aired. Some no. of the, I remember there was one called Cow and Chicken as well, which always a mixed match of animals would get together and do some questionable things. Yeah. And they have big bands doing the soundtracks. Never knew. Mm. Never knew. Anything else? Oh, that that's probably you feel covered on Devo. Yeah, that's, that's good. My, that's my last little. We can 
We can move on. 